Hello and welcome to our Unenlightenment podcast. My name is Eric English. I'm your resident philosopher, theologian, and ninja. Another great show for you here today. I have with me Rabbi Orr Rose. Uh, Orr is the founding director for the Miller Center for Interreligious Learning and Leadership. He is also a professor at Hebrew College. He's also the editor of Words to Live By, Sacred Sources for Interreligious Engagement. He is with us here today. Welcome, Rabbi. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with you. So, not only is this the first time that we've uh, had a rabbi on the show, but really it's the first time that we've had anybody from a different religious perspective on the show. Um, our podcast is all about uh, interreligious dialogue, so I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and uh, I think we'll have a good dialogue here. I'm honored to be in your company, to be the first Jewish speaker, and uh, to start the conversation about interreligious cooperation. So my first question is, I'm a Christian, you're Jewish, why should you and I be having an interreligious dialogue? Like, what benefits do you see in making space for something like this? Thank you. When I think about interreligious dialogue and other interreligious activities, I have two motivations. One is positive and one is negative. Let me start with the latter. Over the course of our communal histories, there has been tremendous animosity, mm -hmm. bloodshed, degradation. And so given that history of Jewish-Christian relations, there is an urgent need to attend to the sins of the past, and to rectify and heal and move forward in a more humane and cooperative way. So that's the beginning of the answer. And that is the negative motivation. Mm -hmm. That is, given all of the hatred and bigotry, given the oppression of Jews, frankly, at the hands of Christians over many centuries, the growth of anti-Judaism and then anti-Semitism, there is a need to try and create new pathways forward. But even absent all of that, it seems to me that fundamentally as human beings, however we articulate our identities and senses of belonging, that there is always more to learn from people that are both similar and different. And so from a spiritual and ethical perspective, why is interreligious dialogue and the other activities that we can talk about necessary? Because we are finite, we are limited. And if we wanna try and maximize our growth both individually and collectively, then we need to be in substantive conversation with other people from whom we can learn with whom we can grow and with whom we can share what we consider to be sacred and to proudly offer blessings across our traditions. Okay. So um, you had mentioned that, um, you know, one of the groups that hasn't treated the the Jews all that kindly are Christians, and I would agree with that. Um, so my question is is how many uh, because it's really humbling to have the uh, one being we'll say persecuted for lack of better term um, coming forward for interreligious dialogue and not the persecutor who should be the one making amends. So my question is, 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 do you get a lot of support from the Christian world, uh, from people wanting to have this interreligious dialogue? So the answer is more and more yes, because as a relatively small religious and cultural community that has been dispersed throughout the world for centuries, we understand that if we are going to participate in what we call tikkun olam, the mending or the healing of the world, then we need to do that in partnership with other people that are willing to 
step forth and engage across lines of difference, knowing too, as I've said or alluded to, that we also share a great deal in common. And part of the dance of interreligious dialogue, of study, of justice work, is always teasing apart what we share in common and how we are different. And then holding that tension, because both are true. We are similar and we are different. We are particular and we are universal. So I think it is much more common than it was even 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years ago for Jewish organizations, children, youth, young adults, synagogues, etc., to be involved in interreligious activities. Obviously, one of the great moments of pain, of loss, unfathomable pain and loss was the Holocaust. And as we as a community heal from that terrible experience of degradation, of injustice, of barbarism, we are more capable psycho-spiritually to engage with other people. And tragically, one of the things that I do need to add is that part of that healing is also reconciling with Christians about their role in the Shoah, as we call it, the great destruction, the Holocaust. And fortunately, many Christian groups since that time have gone through internal processes trying to analyze and reckon with their roles throughout history, and especially during the Second World War, um, as it relates to Jews and to other minorities. And one of the signal moments in interreligious engagement, of course, was the convening of the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s, in which the Catholic Church made a series of pronouncements that were truly historical took responsibility for the hatred and the degradation of Jews over centuries. And since that time, Protestants and Catholics collectively and individually have come forth and are also more and more willing to engage in the kind of conversation we're having right now. And so as that has happened, I think it has given Jews greater trust to be involved in this work and to help betress this understanding that if we are here and we are to be a light unto the nations, not the only light, but a light unto the nations, then we need to do that work of mending and healing in partnership with other people. Mm-hmm. And that there is what to learn substantively, spiritually, ethically, politically, socially, from Christians, from Muslims, from Buddhists, from Hindus. And so we are... We are more and more involved in that work. And it's never even or linear, as you well know, mm-hmm. uh, true of the rest of life too. Yeah. So that it's an ongoing growth and development of learning and relearning to trust ourselves and each other. And all of it begins with conversations like these where one person reaches out and says, could we sit and talk? So I'm Mm -hmm. extremely grateful to you, Eric, um, for initiating this conversation. Absolutely. How, how um, do your peers uh, share your uh, enthusiasm for interreligious dialogue? Of course, you know, each and every one of us is self-selecting when it comes to peers and colleagues and so forth. So I can't make a universal statement But I have very dear colleagues, uh, both in the Jewish community and in the Christian and Muslim communities. More and more, I'm meeting people from Buddhist, Hindu, and other communities that are very invested in this work. There is a long history of interreligious work. We sometimes forget that. And so we're not the only ones or the first to work at this project. It's changed and evolved over time. But I would say part of my work as someone that is both a scholar and an activist, is to uncover and to share the stories of brave individuals and groups of people 
that were willing to do this kind of border crossing and bridge building work in the past. So I'll give you just one simple example. I was blessed to have as one of my teachers, a man named Rabbi Zalman Shakhtar Shalomi, who died in 2014. And he was the founder of a movement within Judaism called the Jewish Renewal Movement. And he was a wonderfully idiosyncratic, creative, brilliant Jewish teacher that drew on a variety of Jewish and non-Jewish strands, intellectual and spiritual, including from Eastern European Hasidism and from American countercultural traditions and such. When he was a graduate student, he went to Boston University, just down the road from me, and enrolled in a program in the psychology of religion. One of the great blessings of his life is that one of his early mentors there was a man by the name of Howard Thurman. Thurman, as some of your listeners might know, is one of America's great spiritual treasures. He was among the first African-American religious leaders to serve as a dean. In fact, I think he was the first to serve as a dean at a majority white college or university. He was a gifted orator. He wrote a book called Jesus and the Disinherited, which became a kind of theological foundational work to several of his students, including Martin Luther King Jr. And so my rabbi was just emerging as a young adult and in his calling as a rabbi, had the good fortune of studying under Thurman's tutelage. And in their first meeting, Shakhtar Shalomi was looking for a place to pray. And he couldn't find a building open at 6.30 or 7 o'clock in the morning on the BU campus other than Marsh Chapel, which is a large Christian chapel. It's one of the centerpieces of the BU college campus. And he was nervous about entering that space and then praying as a Jew, finding an appropriate space in that Christian sacred space. And so Thurman picking up on this young rabbi's anxiety without even having to say a word, invited him into a small chapel in which he removed the large brass cross from the center of the room, put it aside temporarily, set up a lectern in the center of the room, lit two beautiful candles like the candles behind you, opened a beautiful ornate Bible to Psalm 139 which is, as you may know, a psalm about God's presence wherever you may be in the heights or the depths and said to this young rabbi, without having to say it explicitly, you are welcome. <laughs> it's those kinds of gestures, right, that create the possibility for transformation. The end of this story, both the snippet and then, you know, the story of the relationship goes as follows. Reb Zalman, as he's called popularly, reciprocated by putting the brass cross back <laughs> at the front of the room every day thereafter, because after all, it was a Christian worship space for much of the day, and so he wanted to honor that. He blew out the candles so it wouldn't be a hazard, <laughs> and then he turned that Bible from 139, the book of Psalms, to Psalm 100, which is a thank you psalm. And that kind of spiritual, textual, devotional play is so powerful to me. And these men were doing it both from different kinds of minority communities, it's important to add, in 1955. And then Reb Zalman described a process in which he really became a mentee to Thurman and really became a devoted student of this spiritual master. And there were differences that abided. And yet, Reb Zalman affectionately referred to Thurman for the rest of their lives as my Rebbe. And for anyone that's familiar with Eastern European Hasidism, a mystical movement that originated in the Ukraine, um, a Rebbe means a spiritual master. And it's not common for a chassid <laughs> to refer to an African-American Baptist minister as a rebbe. 
but that's how he felt about him. And it started with that kind of gesture of what I would describe as interreligious hospitality. And, you know, as, as the offspring of Abraham and Sarah, who in our tradition are famous for their hospitality, for opening their tent flaps to wayfarers, it's such a powerful experience. And in each of our traditions, in all of the traditions that I know, religiously speaking, hospitality is a fundamental. It doesn't mean that you have to give up your identity. It doesn't mean that you have to sacrifice your particularity, but it does mean expanding your consciousness and asking if I'm working towards sacred ends and I live in a context where there are going to be people that believe and practice differently than I do, what can I do reasonably to try and make them feel like they belong in a world where so many people feel alienated, feel like they are not seen or heard, whether they themselves have experienced right, exile of one form or another or not, we all understand what it means to feel on the outs and to feel like I'm alone. So it's stories like that, and I'm sorry for being somewhat long-winded, Okay. that really anchor my work. And I would just add one other word, which is I don't feel like we are resourced enough with stories like that. So um, that's a part of my work. And uh, I feel like uncovering those stories is really important because we do have many stories in our canons about hospitality, but most of them are about one person from an in-group helping another person from an in-group. And when the stories expand beyond, those stories oftentimes are also still laced with negative commentary about an other who didn't behave, mm -hmm. who did not behave in the way that the narrator thinks they should behave, right? So can we learn to tell stories about this kind of hospitality in which we also don't need to insult <laughs> or degrade some other in the process. Sure. Sure. That's a, a good segue for us to uh, talk for a second about your, the book that you edited words to live by um, in there. I uh, recall you contribute a article and you, um, Tell a couple of stories of, I think it's Heschel, is, am I pronouncing that correctly? Yeah. Abraham Joshua Heschel, correct. Yes. And uh, uh, I know that you're a fan of his. I've heard you talk a lot about him in the past. And um, so I, I was really, you know, you're talking about uh, interreligious play and stuff like that. I was really uh, curious about his relationship to the African-American community uh, because you tell this great story in there actually a couple stories in there about his role in uh, anti-racism activism. And um, so I wonder if you'd share a bit uh, about that with us. Sure. So a word of background about the book, which I see displayed so nicely behind <laughs> you, words to live by. That was a follow-up actually to an, to an earlier volume called My Neighbor's Faith. Mm. My Neighbor's Faith um, was published, if memory serves me correctly, in 2012. And it was based on an interreligious conference, on interreligious education um, in seminaries and graduate programs in religion. And we could have made the choice as conveners of that conference at Hebrew College and Andover Newton Theological Seminary to create a more conventional series of um, written versions of the talks that people gave, a kind of proceedings from a conference, mm -hmm. but we were so moved by the stories, the personal stories that people told, Jews, Christians, Muslims, etc., about encountering an other, whether in the classroom or, as I described, <laughs> in a chapel or on a sports field, that we decided to gather 50 stories about encounter, growth, and transformation from leading religious leaders um, from across the United States and a few from Canada. So that was the first volume. 
Um, and thankfully the volume um, has spread far and wide and it's used in, in several different contexts, book groups and synagogue and church groups. It's used in undergraduate courses in religion. It's used uh, by several seminaries. And as a follow-up to that book, what we wanted to do was to then invite a group of scholars and religious leaders and ask them, what are the texts that inspire, that guide, that authorize your work as someone that's involved in interreligious dialogue or study or action? So that was the context for the second volume, Words to Live By. I'm really deeply honored that Orbis Books, which is a Catholic press, published both. So my contribution uh, to Words to Live By, as you said, is a short telegram from 1963 that Rabbi Abraham Joshua Heschel, who was then a professor at the Jewish Theological Seminary in New York and an activist for several different causes, wrote to none other than President John F. Kennedy. And it's a short and pithy piece in which Heschel, as he does several times in his writing, plays the role of spiritual and ethical gadfly. <laughs> and the line that um, has stayed with me ever since I first saw that telegram is as follows. Um, we forfeit the right to worship God as long as we continue to humiliate Negroes. <laughs> and it's such a powerful and searing example Heschel's unwavering commitment to God and humanity and his refusal to say that the two can be somehow separated. You forfeit the right to worship God as long as you continue to humiliate, in our day we would say African-Americans. So Heschel was a person that narrowly escaped the Nazis. And he considered himself in his own words, a brand plucked from the fire. And so when he arrived on these shores, once he acclimated and established himself both as a scholar and as a more popular religious writer, he dedicated enormous amounts of time to social justice causes. One of them was the plight of African-Americans. And he became close colleagues and friends with Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr and was involved with several of the great actions of that era. One of them being the march from Selma to Montgomery. And he famously said that the experience of marching from Selma to Montgomery with Dr. King and the other leaders in the movement and all the other folks that came was as if his legs were praying. Hmm. That with every step he took along that road, he felt that he was involved in an embodied spiritual experience. And in using that phrase, he's also hearkening back to lessons that he learned from his Hasidic forebears. Because there is a concept in Hasidism called Avodah which means service through corporeality or service through the physical world. And in that teaching, the Hasidic masters, these great mystics said, anywhere you go, whatever the situation might be, understand that God is present. And so the question is, are you attuned to the moment? Do you understand that there is an opportunity right here and now, whether it's in the marketplace, at home with your spouse or your children, while walking through the woods, they were particularly fond of talking about the possibility of spiritual enlightenment in nature, that God is present. And so Heschel was hearkening back to that and applying it to a situation which most of his forebears, of course, would have found completely foreign, but it fit the template so beautifully. Here he was marching for justice, marching for equality, marching for inclusivity, and in an embodied physical way, he felt God's presence. And it was as if his entire body, his feet, his legs, his hands, his arms were involved 
in worship. And so in both cases, what he's pointing out is you can't separate the realms of the quote unquote religious activities and the rest mm -hmm. of life. Because again, to use an expression that, that was given to him, as he would say, with mother's milk from the Hasidim, is that God's holy sparks are present anywhere and everywhere. The question is, do we have eyes that are open to the holiness that is indwelling? And Heschel was involved with several great causes during his lifetime. Uh, civil rights was one. Another was the Second Vatican Council. Mm -hmm. And um, he was very, he was very strong-minded in that process as uh, an observer and as a special counselor to those proceedings. And part of what he insisted upon is that missionizing to Jews needed to end. Hmm. That um, Jews had been under duress for centuries and that there are just too many stories of people that were either forced to convert or given the option, of course, of converting or being murdered. And for Heschel, that missionizing work needed to end. Um, I would say in my own time and place that blessedly, we have seen that that kind of missionizing work has changed significantly. I still think there's a lot of work to be done. But if individuals based on their life experience, their learning, their attractions to different spiritual paths, choose to leave one tradition and join another, that is their prerogative. Mm -hmm. But each and every one of us has to treat the religious traditions of other peoples and other communities with greater respect than mm -hmm. have been treated, treated in the past. And uh, so for Heschel, that was a very important part of that work. Um, and at the same time, he was willing to say of Dr. King and other Christian leaders that he met, these people are individuals of great spiritual integrity, of moral rectitude. In fact, he said of Dr. King, Dr. King is the closest thing we have to Moses in our generation. If you want to understand why this movement is so potent, then go and participate in rallies and marches go and see how they conduct their religious services. Understand right, the power, the inspiration that people draw from being in church and how that serves too, obviously, as a, as a social and political context to move people rooted in their religious traditions. So Heschel was a very special individual. He also was very outspoken against the war in Vietnam and for that, he took a good deal of flack, as you can imagine, for different reasons. He also was one of the people involved uh, in the movement to bring liberty and freedom to Jews in the former Soviet Union, who were suffering greatly, who were not given the opportunity to express their religious values and commitments openly. And so he was involved with all of those. And, uh, you know, he was a, he was a unique modern religious figure. And I'm so pleased that many, many people now, Jews, Christians, both Catholics and Protestants, people that don't consider themselves religious, but are involved in social justice movements, know something of Heschel's legacy. And uh, he's, he is a, a great inspiration to me. Uh, and that's why I chose to write about him, because I thought that telegram in some ways just epitomized who this unusual man was and the great journey that he took and the courage that he possessed to say, I have suffered tremendously. Life as I know it uh, in Eastern Europe has been destroyed. I've lost family members and teachers and colleagues and friends. And rather than come to the United States and retreat, right, um, into my own enclave, what I'm going to do is try and be a spokesperson for justice. And that includes justice for African-Americans. Mm -hmm. 
Have you, do you see much of his uh, legacy in today's Jewish community in regards to activism, um, racial justice, stuff like that? Has, has his legacy been carried on, do you think? Absolutely. I think he's, he's probably amongst the most popular theologians and activists um, in religious and secular Jewish contexts. His courage is something that has been an inspiration to countless numbers of people. I think the risk with such figures, like Dr. King and others, mm -hmm. is that um, we don't examine the complexity of their lives, including what was difficult, where they erred, where they fell short, not in a kind of gotcha <laughs> mode, like, oh, we thought he was so great, but you know, he didn't do this or he didn't do this well, but to learn from them and also to understand that it wasn't easy or simple, um, that they struggled. And so when we are struggling, when the path forward is not clear, which often is not, it's not that we somehow are benighted, but we're a part of a community, right? As Christians might call it, you know, a cloud of witnesses who have all come before us and struggled and have tried to find their way. So what can we learn from King, from Heschel, from Gandhi, from Dorothy Day, from so many other courageous folks that struggled for justice? And what were they able to accomplish? What were they not able to accomplish? What do we think we would have done similarly in their day? What do we think we would have done differently in their day? What is needed now that they would have done differently or that they could not have anticipated? And again, it relates to the story that I told about my teacher, Rabbi Zalman Shachter Shalomi and Howard Thurman. Shachter Shalomi, of course, himself, as you might expect, was also influenced greatly by Heschel. They were both from Hasidic backgrounds and Heschel was an older mentor and friend to Shachter Shalomi. So I think understanding the history in a nuanced way uh, about the choices that these individuals made is really important. But his influence that is of Heschel lives on strongly. And frankly, I think we need it as much today or more so um, than when, when he passed in, in 1972. I think that um, in Christian circles, there is a general ignorance to Jewish tradition and culture. I, I think that there's a, uh, maybe it's a lack of appreciation for the foundation that Judaism sets for Christianity um, with the Hebrew scriptures and just of the traditions and, and different things like that. But I think there's largely an ignorance in uh, Christian communities where people really need to be educated uh, a bit more. Uh, to have that appreciation for what uh, has been passed down to them and for, and for what can uh, not just pass down to them, but how that relationship can continue that you can still have that sort of beneficial um, relationship back and forth. Um, it, if you were to frame for, let me, let me rephrase that. If you were to, um, communicate to a, a group of Christians, say you were speaking in front of them and you wanted to communicate what you thought the best or the biggest virtues of Judaism was uh, for them to take away, what, what would you share with them? Mm. Thank you. It's a very generous question. I want mm. to point that out. How often do we pause and ask, what might we learn from you? Mm -hmm. So um, among the things that I'd want to say <laughs> <laughs> is that Jews and Christians have learned from each other over the course of centuries. Even when we couldn't admit it, we were watching, we were listening, we were internalizing lessons from people in our surroundings. And so that, first of all, is worth uncovering because that's been going on for centuries. So rabbinic Judaism and Christianity grew from the Hebrew Bible, from the traditions 
uh, of the temple. And of course, Jesus was a Jew. <laughs> he was a rabbi. And so to understand the historical and cultural context in which he lived and died, I think is very important. And there's so much interesting scholarship and religious teaching available now that was not available even 50 years ago um, is worth exploring. So, for example, two wonderful Bible scholars, Amy Jill Levine and Mark Brettler, recently published a book called The Bible With and Without Jesus. So to see how we have read the Hebrew Bible, which is sometimes referred to as the Old Testament, but it is a shared testament. Mm-hmm. See how that has been read by Jews and Christians throughout the centuries is fascinating. And what happens when you read with Jesus at the center or not? So first of all, that historical textual work is, I think, something that all of us need to do. When it comes to the Jewish traditions that animate my life and that I think are most significant in the here and now, um, I would also say to Christians, recognize that like Christianity, Judaism has evolved over the centuries. In fact, if you ask me, what is the secret of our survival? As the Dalai Lama, once again, very generously like you did, Eric, asked a group of Jewish leaders from the United States and Israel. The Dalai Lama, this great international spiritual and political figure invited a group of Jews and said very simply, you have honed the craft of survival and exile, not because you asked for it, but you have become experts at reimagining your religion in exile. My people is now in exile. We are newer to it, but we need to learn how to survive and thrive. So the first thing that I would say in response, as did some of my teachers, like Shakhtar Shalomi, who was a part of that delegation, to you or to the Dalai Lama, is that Judaism has developed this wonderful ability at once to maintain its rootedness in the past and at the same time to innovate. So that the Sabbath throughout the generations has looked similar and different. Just as every human being and every group is similar and different, so are religious traditions throughout the ages. And so I would say, if we pause and dwell on Shabbat or the Sabbath for a moment, it's one of Judaism's great gifts to the world. Particularly today, when devices like this, which are meant to ease our burdens, can become devices that enslave us, Do we have the wherewithal to take time, to honor time, to understand that there is a texture to time daily and weekly? So I'm not suggesting that people everywhere from all walks of life should observe the Sabbath as Jews might, whether Orthodox or conservative, reform, some of the above, none of the above, right? With all of the rules and regulations, all of the customs and such that have grown over the centuries. But I would ask the question universally, do we take time out of our mechanized world to be present to the people that we love, to give thanks for the basic gifts of life, to pray, to yearn, to express gratitude, One of the blessings of the Sabbath is that the rules that the rabbis established insist that physical and spiritual delight are bound up in each other. So on the Sabbath, we take more time to eat. We take more time to sing. We take more time for conversation that matters. And that to me is something that we desperately need in this day and age. I think that by force of nature, we learned something about it, I hope and pray, over the course of the pandemic. Because the texture of time changed so dramatically for so many people. So what did we learn about stepping back? What did we learn about stepping in? 
What did we learn about being with loved ones? What did we learn about being alone? What did we learn about being with God? Mm-hmm. That oftentimes is so hard to access because of the clamor and the noise of the lives that we create, including folks like you and me that <laughs> understand our work to be holy work. And I'm a rabbi, but at the end of the day, if we're running ourselves ragged and expecting that other people are going to run themselves ragged for good and just and holy causes, then how is that possibly sustainable? And how are we going to bend that arc of justice, as Dr. King referred to it, without taking time to mark celebrations, victories, losses, to imagine a world beyond the one that we're in now, one of the great gifts of Shabbat with time, inspired by prayer, taking a step back from the workaday routine is to ask, how do I want my world to look in the next week, month, or year? What is my grand vision for the world beyond me? How can I participate in it? And the other thing that I wanna say, which Heschel articulated so beautifully is, as you're imagining all of that, Can you imagine what it might be like and what is necessary to do to try and include more people, particularly those on the margins of society, in experiencing something of the the beauty, of the deliciousness of a Sabbath experience? And then can you carry that Shabbat consciousness into the everyday, right? Which Heschel again would insist upon. Can you say my legs are praying um, is, is an extension of carrying Shabbat with you wherever you go, right? Because it's another symbol for God's indwelling presence and our attention to it. The one other thing that I'll say, which again um, is historically minded, is that in the individuation of Judaism and Christianity throughout the centuries, of all with all of the push and pull and so forth and so on, sometimes as we discussed in in very ragged and brutal ways, the bifurcation and the stereotype of Christianity being a tradition of love and Judaism being a tradition of law is simply untrue and is also not helpful in our growth forward. Uh Because at the heart of both of our traditions is love of God and love of our fellows. Of course, I would say, based on other traditions uh, from the rabbis and such and from the Hebrew Bible, that dignity (laughs) has to precede love and that we need to treat every human being, whether we can love them or not, with dignity because we're all created in the divine image. But to aspire to love God and to love humankind is what we all hope and pray we can do. Law um, is a framework for how to do that with specificity. (laughs) And so in both of our traditions, of course, there are rules and regulations. There are commandments and there are more informal mores of how to behave collectively and individually. And so one of the questions that I would ask of both traditions is, how do we specify and concretize our desire to treat people with dignity and to try and love more expansively? Um, You can't just do that through broad pronouncements. Um, Are you helping to clothe the naked? Are you helping to feed the hungry? Are you giving shelter to the widow and to the orphan? Those are mandates. Those are what we must do. In the Jewish tradition, those things are called mitzvot. They are commandments, you know, based on the rulings in the Hebrew Bible, and then the extrapolations by the rabbis. And of course, Jesus was a part of that cultural conversation after the destruction of the second temple. How do we take all of this wisdom And how do we treat ourselves and others and build societies um, that are infused with love and where we are responsible? So I think there should be more nuanced conversations about those elements 
Um, because again, there's so much ignorance. And you said there's ignorance in the Christian community. There's also ignorance in the Jewish tradition too. Um, and then it's entangled with fear and with guilt and with bigotry. So, you know, having thoughtful conversations with people about how do you organize your life? If your aspiration is to treat other people and to treat the earth with respect and dignity, and you want to become a more loving person, you want to become a kinder person, you want to become a person who is an embodiment of God's grace, of God's chesed, how do you do that concretely? What are you doing today? Whether it's related to making vaccinations available far and wide to people that often are marginalized or are hesitant, or it's about feeding people, particularly as we come out of this pandemic. Food insecurity is a huge issue in this country. And we could just you know, continue the list. Um, how do we create a shared habitat that is just, in which resources are available to people um, that is a part of their God-given right. Um, and we, you know, in the United States, who live in relative affluence, um, have particular responsibilities. I would say we have mitzvot <laughs> um, that we are not fulfilling in ways that we need to across our traditions. Mm -hmm. And I'm implicated in that just like anyone and everyone else. Um, that has the benefit of so many resources uh, at our fingertips in the U.S., particularly if you're a person, um, as American culture has evolved, who is designated as white. Um, we have to think long and hard about what our responsibilities are and, and what is incumbent upon us. The word for Jewish law, by the way, uh, traditionally is halacha. Halacha means a path. Right, which is much broader than a rule mm -hmm. or legislation. It is how do you walk an upright life? Right? If justice and mercy, going back to the Bible, right, are two of the watchwords in our traditions, right? Tzedek and Mishpat. So how do you walk a path of justice and mercy? What does that look like in an embodied way and in an enfleshed way? we might say, mm -hmm. <laughs> in this context. Uh, it means that you are, you are obliged to act in certain ways. Um, and again, a person like Heschel would say, you can't separate the quote-unquote religious activities of Torah study or of Sabbath observance or of hours of prayer from the things that we just mentioned. Right? Heschel, of course, among his great works, was this very large and in-depth study of the prophets, mm -hmm. right? So is this the fast that you desire of us? We read on Yom Kippur, right? Um, so the fasting can be helpful, right? We all understand about the, the power of ritual, but is it accompanied by being, being as, as the prophet says, a repairer of the breach? attending to people on the margins, literally and figuratively, you know, of our fields, to use that agricultural reference from the, from the Bible again, or are you putting on sack, you know, and uh, sackcloth and ashes, but really not paying attention to the people that are suffering around you? Mm -hmm. I'll step off my soapbox, but those are some of the things that, that, that come to mind. And, and I say those with passion, but also humility, because I know I'm falling short every day. You know, I'm tripping up over my own feet and my own ego and, uh, you know, trying to glean another of those <laughs> pastoral references from the Bible. How do we glean from the traditions uh, before us? My teacher, again, Reb Zalman, used to say, I really dislike the term the cutting edge. I know what people mean by it, but why would you want to cut yourself off from all of the wisdom that has come before us? It doesn't mean that you have to live your life exactly as did, you know, fill in the blank from another historical epoch. But how can we live on the growing edge, you know, trying to integrate the best of the teachings of the past? Uh, to return, you know, to my opening statement about <laughs> Judaism and the secret of survival, who would have thought 
that Judaism would have survived after the destruction of the second temple and the exile of the people for centuries and centuries. But our forebears were very creative and they said, no longer are we going to have a temple centered tradition. It's going to be a Torah centered tradition. It's going to be a prayer book centered tradition. It's going to be a Shabbat centered tradition, right? We're going to create holiness temples in miniature, if you will, between the pages of these books in our synagogues, around the table on the Sabbath. All of these can be temple-like experiences. Playing in our hearts. In our hearts, exactly. Playing, as you just anticipated, you know, with what we describe today as time and space, <laughs> and external and internal. Right? Mm -hmm. These are all places where we can create, we can create, temples, right? Just as we have the command of circumcision, right? Of the foreskin, going back to the Bible, right? There is, you know, the circumcision of the heart, you know, which is another metaphor or creating the altar on the heart. Um, yes, exactly. So all of those were great innovations, but they were innovations within tradition. And, you know, that's very complicated work. And I know you're involved with it. And when we, were, when we were together, you know, on that New York rooftop a few weeks ago, it was wonderful to hear people from evangelical and mainline communities that were asking some of the same questions, you know, um, how, how are we crafting, you know, Christianities for the present and for the future? Um, you know, and it's a version, of course, of the bumper sticker, what would Jesus do? But think about how God is calling to you what your community needs and what the world needs of you. And the world now is, is globalized. Um, mm -hmm. so who is friend? Who is neighbor? Um, you know, those questions are, we're, we're groping with um, one conversation like this at a time. Well, that is a great way to end our conversation. We've been talking with Rabbi Or Rose about interreligious dialogues and just want to thank you for joining us on the program today. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Rabbi.